0: welcome i'm sam holland i get to share with you tonight and now let's talk about our passage this week would you know what i meant if i said "mewage" is what brings us together today (laughs) i'm talking of course about the princess bride this is the book my husband got me for christmas We actually both got each other books this Christmas. After 15 years, we figured out the perfect gift for each of us is a book. I got him a biography of Martin Luther, and he got me The Princess Bride. And um, if you don't know this story, this is a story, a love story. It's about Buttercup and Wesley. And Buttercup is, she lives on a farm that her parents own, and Wesley is the boy working On this farm for Buttercup and her family. But Buttercup doesn't call him Wesley at first. She calls him Fonboy. And she orders him around. She's really rude to him. Fonboy, polish my saddle. Fonboy, fill these buckets with water. Fonboy, fetch me that pitcher. And no matter what she says to him, no matter how she orders him around, you'll remember He smiles and says, as you wish. And he does it. Well, eventually, he wins her over with this behavior. And she realizes, oh my gosh, he's in love with me, and I'm in love with him too. And so I wanna read you the part in the book when Buttercup has just realized that she's in love with Wesley. This is why you should read books and not just see movies, because there's so much more. So, this is what she says to him. There's no room in my body for anything but you. My arms love you. My ears adore you. My knees shake with blind affection. My mind begs you to ask it something so it can obey. Do you want me to follow you for the rest of your days? I will do that. Do you want me to crawl? I will crawl. I will be quiet for you or sing for you. Or if you're hungry, let me bring you food. Or if you have thirst and nothing will quench it but Arabian wine, I will go to Arabi. Even though it is across the world. Is Arabi a place? I don't know. And bring a bottle back for your lunch. Anything there is that I can do for you, I will do for you. Anything there is that I cannot do, I will learn how to do it. Boy, she is Twitterpated with him. I love this story because it's one of those stories that shows us the gospel in a love story, right? So um, Buttercup loves Wesley because while she was treating him horribly, he was doing everything for her because he loved her. This is how he showed his love to her. He won her over, serving her while she bossed him around, right? And that's the gospel. Um, This is to the point where she said, my mind begs you to ask it something so it can obey. This is how we respond to what Christ has done for us, isn't it? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that's why we love, serve, and obey him. And that's why love is so powerful, because it gives us a glimpse of God. God is love. If you attend River West Church and we're here on Sunday morning, Pastor Adam introduced our the next book series that we're going to go through on um, Sunday mornings. And it's 1 John, which is the love letter in the Bible. It's all about love and how God is love and how the only reason that we have the capacity to love is because God has first loved us. So relationships, they give us this glimpse of God, and love and marriage is arguably the most intense relationship that we can have, right? There is something really crazy about saying, I commit myself to you until I die. That's drastic. Who does that? day in and day out, in sickness and in health. It's dramatic. And when you're young and fresh like Buttercup and Wesley and you're infatuated with each other, that just fuels the whole thing. You don't need anything else at that point. But when you've been married for 15 years, you realize, well, it's not always like that. And some of you have been married a lot longer than me. And some of you have gone through divorces and a lot of pain because of marriage. And you know it's, it's not like Buttercup and Wesley. For some of you, your deepest pain and wounding has actually come from marriage. And the truth is, God never meant for marriage to create pain in our lives. That's the furthest thing from his heart. Now this week in our passage, we saw this vision of what marriage could be, a possibility, the ideal. But before we look at our passage, let's consider for a moment the literary context of our passage. You know, we have this great Bible study where we get to break Ephesians down into these weekly passages that we read. But Marianne's been so great about tying it back into the whole book of Ephesians. And we have to do that so we can get the whole picture of what's going on. It's like with The Princess Bride, if all you knew was the love story, you would not have the full picture of this book. If you've seen the movie, the grandfather, he brings this book on a sick day to babysit his grandson. He's going to read him this story. He starts reading and he gets to this scene and the grandson says, wait a minute, is this a kissing book? And his grandpa has to encourage him. No, no, just hear the rest of the story. It gets really good. If you stopped at the love part of The Princess Bride, spoiler alert, you wouldn't know that Wesley, at one point Buttercup presumes Wesley's dead. And so she gets engaged to Prince Humperdinck. That's how the book got its name, Princess Bride. You wouldn't know that he later comes back as the man in black. He's been the dread pirate Roberts you wouldn't know about the battle of wits with Fissini. It's inconceivable what happens in this movie. I couldn't help it. Well, in the same way, we have to consider the literary context of our passage, right? Um, and so let's just review. What is the whole book of Ephesians about? We've learned a lot so far, haven't we? What are some things we've learned? Well, First of all, we know Ephesians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people in relationships. Perfect. We're a group of people in relationships. We're just the right people to read this. If you're married, maybe you even read it with your husband this week. I know a few of you did. Well, what does Ephesians tell us? Big picture. It tells us about the riches of our inheritance in Christ, right? Um, Through God's grace, in Christ, how He's drawn us together, Jews and Gentiles, and He's building us into a building, a temple actually, for His Holy Spirit to live in, and we make up the stones of this building, and then Christ, of course, is the big cornerstone in the foundation, right? Um, Ephesians is about living in unity. There's there's a big major theme of unity in this book, and serving the world together as a body where Christ is the head, right? That was another one of the metaphors that Paul used. So these are the overall framework that we've been given for this book. And then our passage, it's not only a part of Ephesians, it's a passage within a passage. If you look at a text carefully, you can usually identify the main verb in a passage and that'll tell you a lot about what's going on in this passage and how do we interpret it and you wouldn't guess it but the main verb in our passage is not submit it's not love it's not respect it's actually not in our passage the main verb is back in verse 18 which is what Marianne taught us last week so verse 18 let's review Paul says don't be drunk with wine that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That is the main verb for our passage. Being filled with the Spirit, it's the prerequisite for a thriving marriage. We learned last week from Marianne, it's God's will for us that we would live day by day, moment by moment, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. God calls and empowers believers to spirit-filled relationships. And so the main truth I want to discover with you today is that God calls and empowers believers to spirit-filled marriages. Well, let's look at this description of a spirit-filled marriage that he's calling us to. And we're going to start chapter 5, verse 18, because that's where our main verb is. It says, And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so starts our passage, right? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, sounds good, right? Living the dream. This is us on our best days, in our best marriages. Maybe you've had a glimpse of this in your marriage. Maybe not. This is Bull spirit both spouses full of the Holy Spirit working as a team serving each other but I know what some of you are thinking that's not how it really is Sam that's not reality that's the movies that's Buttercup and Wesley I know that is why Paul had to write this letter to us because it's impossible to get it right in the flesh right we need the Holy Spirit desperately in our lives and in our marriages. That's why the marriage passage falls where it does under be filled with the Spirit. I hope you wrote that down. I'm going to say it a lot today. So the question is, why? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? What has gone wrong? Well, we're going to answer that by looking at two aspects of marriage. The first is in the past. It's God's design and then the damage that's been done to marriage. And then Last, we'll look at God's dream for marriage. So let's start in the beginning with the design and then the damage. In the beginning, God made everything, right? Including a man and a woman. Genesis 2.23 tells us, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman, and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I love um, what Adam says at last because if you read the verses before God's been parading animals in front of Adam trying to find a helper suitable for him it's funny because you're reading it going well obviously none of the animals the other species were going to be the right helper so finally God just makes a woman out of the man out of his rib out of his body and I love that he took part of the man's body to make the woman because then when a man and woman get married it's like he's putting them back together like putting the rib back in, and then it's one flesh again, right? And this is our key truth for this part. It's that God's original design for a man and woman in marriage is that they would be one flesh. That was his original design. He took the woman out of the man, and then he put her back in. The first time that we read about any explicit authority structure in a marriage isn't until after the fall, after sin. And it appears to be God foretelling a power struggle. He's going to foretell the effects of sin on us, on marriage. In Genesis 3.16, we see God foretelling what would happen in marriage because of sin. He tells the woman, your desire, it's going to be contrary to your husband's because now sin's in the world. And he shall rule over you because of sin in the world. So our study this week in question six, it explained the word desire is interpreted as a strong drive to control or dominate. Because of sin, sometimes we just want to control our husbands and our marriages. And Because of the fall, sometimes they want to rule over us, lord it over us. So because of the fall, we have this struggle to work as a team and serve each other the way God designed it to go. We tend toward selfishness. We either dominate each other on one end of the spectrum of selfishness, or we drift off over here into independence. Oh, my needs aren't being met. I'm just going to withdraw and do my own thing. So these are two ends of this, two selfish ends of the spectrum, dominating and independence. But service is what we're called to, selflessness, one flesh, spirit-filled. That was the design in God's original plan for marriage. Now, another result of sin is, of course, choosing to live separately from God, right? We have free will. Relationship with God is a choice, And some of you are married to someone who's living separated from God by choice. They're living outside of relationship with him. So you're the only one in the relationship who's even capable of being spirit-filled, right? So what are you called to with your husband if he's not a Christ follower? Or if he is a Christ follower and he's not spirit-filled, he's not connected, he's not growing? Well... We saw in our lesson this week, the Apostle Peter has something for us to consider. He tells us in 1 Peter 3.7, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct this is actually part of my parents' story. My parents are sitting over here, and they, my mom became a Christian before my dad did. And he saw transformation in her life. I asked him to describe it. He said, well, she exhibited a softer, more caring disposition. She showed more patience and understanding. Those are fruits of the Spirit. I thought that was the Holy Spirit in her life. The fruits of the Spirit are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control. And my dad, he was drawn to that in my mom. And I think about six months later, he gave his life to Christ. He was essentially won without a word by the conduct of his wife. Now, I tell you that to give you hope. I realize that's anecdotal evidence, and not every marriage will go that way, or it might take a really long time for that to happen in your marriage, and it takes a lot of long-suffering to get there. But also, I know that some marriages are filled with abuse and addiction and I just want to say, if you're experiencing abuse or addiction in your marriage, the priority is to get to a safe place, and then we have pastors and counselors who want to help you. And they do all the time. They help people who are in abusive or addictive relationships. But for the rest of us, remember the main verb in this passage. Do you remember it? Be filled with the Spirit. It's what we're called to no matter what. And it could be that like my parents, you being filled with the Spirit, that could actually draw your husband into a relationship with God. Or it could draw him closer in his relationship with God. But I just want to acknowledge again, it is difficult to live day in and day out with someone who's spiritually on a different page than you. It's not easy Um, But I think the Spirit can help you on your end. I really do. Marriage takes determination even when you're both Spirit-filled Christ followers because you're making that choice every day to be a Spirit-filled Christ follower. So what is God's message for you today? Well, first of all, it's grace, major theme of Ephesians. No matter what our marriage relationships look like, we know From Ephesians, God has poured out his love and his grace and his Holy Spirit into our lives. He hasn't withheld any blessing from you or from me. And he meets us right where we are in the brokenness of our marriages. He knows your marriage. He knows mine. He knows exactly what we need. He knows our struggles. But above everything else, he wants us to come to him first for everything come, ask to be filled with the Spirit for wisdom and for power in your marriage. So are you single and desiring to be married? Walk in the Spirit and seek wisdom from God on who you'll marry. It's a big decision. If you're married, walk in the Spirit and seek God on how to live out each day with your own husband, no matter what his spiritual status is and how he's carrying out his part. Do you swing between Independence and dominance, I think we all do. Ask the spirit to bring you and your husband towards each other and towards spirit-filled one flesh, like originally designed. Okay, so marriage was designed to be good and beautiful, two people becoming one flesh. It's sin and brokenness that has damaged our potential for good, beautiful relationships and that has made marriage such a struggle. So we've talked about the design and the damage. Let's talk about the dream. So even though God had this wonderful design for marriage and it was beautiful, sin tore it all apart. But now, because of Christ's death on the cross, through the Holy Spirit, God is making all things new, including our marriages. And he's made a way for us to pursue the original one flesh design for our marriage relationships in his power. So this is the key truth for the dream. It's that God's desire today is for a man and a woman to be one flesh in a spirit-filled marriage. So I just want to know, was it at all hard for you to read this passage Because maybe you're kind of independent and you're a 2018 woman, you know, and the very first thing says, wives, submit to your husbands. He's the head of you. Anyone? Asking for a friend? (laughs) Seriously, though, at first glance, it feels that way. Hey, wives, let your husbands boss you around if you just stop there. In fact, I've known... More than one friend who has either read this passage or heard this passage. And because of the teaching of this passage, decided maybe church isn't for me. Maybe Christianity isn't for me. Because the idea of submitting to a spouse just kind of feels archaic. We just don't do that, right? In 2018. I mean, but maybe it's hard for you to imagine submitting because your marriage has been a huge struggle and source of pain in your life. And you don't respect your husband. How are you supposed to respect your husband when you don't respect him? That's what I always come back to when it says respect your husband. It's like, well, but if I don't, then how do I? For some, unfortunately, reading instructions to submit to your husband is actually a trigger to some of the most painful parts of your life. And I'm not advocating submission to an abusive spouse, and I never would, and no one should, And there have been times when this passage has been misused to advocate for submission to abuse and oppression of women. And we can't stand for that. May it never be so. It's clearly not what the passage says. But I do think on some level our culture colors the way we react to the word submit in this passage. We just can't help it. We live in this amazing time to be a woman. I say that all the time. I tell my daughter, it is an amazing time to be a woman on this earth. We, we've been voting and free to work outside the home and marry for love and not duty for a long time. And globally, there's movements to free women from all kinds of slavery and oppression. And we live in the age of Me Too and Church Too, where women are speaking out and standing up and saying, we will not be exploited and oppressed and quiet anymore. And that is so good. But have you seen the slogan, the future is female? Okay, that's where I wonder if we've gone a step too far. You know, I hope the future's not female. I mean, isn't that the fall? Isn't that dominance? That's not what we're going for. I pray that the future's male and female. This equality, equal image bearers, that was God's design. That should be our goal. I hope that in my quest for my God-given equality as a co-image bearer, I don't disempower men in the process. And here's the tricky thing about this passage. You can't pull the woman's part apart the woman's part apart from the man's part. They have to go together, right? You you just can't pull them apart. We want to do that because we're an individualistic Western society. It's what we do. But we have to look at them together because that's the design and the dream. It's the togetherness of them. You're not one person anymore. You and your husband are one flesh. You can't take it apart. So keep the idea of this spirit-filled one flesh in mind while I ask you, what does submission look like for us today? Well, I surveyed some of my friends, and I asked them about this, and it kind of boiled down to three main areas where they experienced tension in their marriage. They said parenting, sex, and money. So with parenting, one of my friends, she said that she can just kind of tend to take over and do all the parenting you know and it can alienate her husband and so for her submission means letting her husband step in and parent it means being a team with him one flesh and sometimes letting him lead out in an area where maybe he's not even as gifted as she is you know but she's willing to do that so that's a parenting example from a friend's life um, I loved the sex example from one of my friends. She said, well, you know, basically my husband, he just has less sex than he wants, and I have more. Wait, did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that's such a good way to put it. I mean, probably most relationships are like that. That's submitting to each other and loving each other. Being married doesn't mean you have sex all the t- as much as you want, because there's another person involved. But it might mean that you have more sex than you want, but your spouse has less. Does that make sense? Okay, and how about money? This is another area where it can be really hard to submit, right, and it looks different in every marriage and some people have different jobs and bank accounts and spending and some of us put it all together and then there's a banker and, you know, It can look really different from marriage to marriage. So, and usually one's a spender and one's a saver. Usually, generally. So let's say your husband, he wants to save and you want to spend. What do you do? Do you secretly shop and just hide stuff in the back of your closet? You know, and he never sees that bill? Well, remember, God's design was one flesh not dominance or secretive independence. So if you find that you have, there are things you're hiding from your spouse, it might be a sign to just check in with the Holy Spirit, right, and per- pursue one flesh with your spouse. You know, I hadn't thought a lot about this, how this played out, submission played out in my own marriage until the past month when I was studying for this. And um, we didn't really talk about it. We got married later in our 20s. So I think we we knew ourselves pretty well. Our our, um, personalities meshed pretty well. You know, it's not perfect, but um, we functioned pretty naturally as a team. Until one day, one of our kids was in preschool and the preschool teacher told me, I really think you need to hold him back. He's not ready for kindergarten. He has a late birthday, so he's usually one of the youngest ones in his class. And I visited class, and I could see what she was talking about. And she was my friend, and I trusted her. And so I just knew we need to hold him back. That's what the teacher said. Well, it surprised me when I processed it with Darren. He said, no, I think we, sh- we should put him in school. And we really hadn't had a disagreement like this before. Well, and we, were, we went round and round and back and forth. And what are we going to do? And we couldn't come to an agreement. Well, and I was either studying Ephesians at this point or just thinking about this verse. At the same time, I was praying, God, what are we going to do? Should we put him in school? we we'll hold him back. And I, my impression from God was let Darren make this decision. And so I did. And then once I felt God give me that peace to let Darren make the decision, we just moved forward, and looking back years later, God has blessed that decision. So that's an example of a time where I submitted to him. He wasn't even asking me to. He never pulled rank on me and said, "You know, I'm just going to make this decision because I'm the head or anything like that." No, it was God asked me to." And remember, it's being filled with the spirit that empowers us to live one flesh in our marriage. Okay, so a few minutes ago, we considered the effects of our culture in 2018 on how we read this passage. So now we're going to consider how the effects of first century culture would have affected the way the original readers read this letter. Okay, so at the time of the writing of this letter, women definitely didn't fall in love and get married like Wesley and Buttercup. Women were property. They were owned by their husbands. First they were owned by their fathers and then they essentially got sold to their husbands. And their primary purpose was to bear children. Can you, that's even, that does not compute. I have no idea what that's like. We have no idea what that's like. I read one article that said women didn't even eat meals with their husbands. Women didn't have individual rights as humans until the Enlightenment. Much, much, much later. So imagine what it was like for first century Christians to read this letter from Paul. So if you're a woman, you're probably sitting in house church listening. You, you likely couldn't read. So you're listening to this letter being read. And you hear, husbands, treat your wives in a Christ-like, self-sacrificial way. Incredible. Incredible jaw-dropping, revolutionary, radical, earth-shattering. We can't even, we can't even experience it. Paul, not only he doesn't tell, he doesn't use the word obey, he doesn't tell the women to obey their husbands, which they would have heard before. He uses household chore imagery to tell husbands how to love their wives. And if you think your husband doesn't do enough chores, Let me just tell you, a first century husband, never. Unheard of, never. This would have been shocking for the men to hear and the women. This was a radical departure for married couples. Well, we should be just as shocked as we look at what Paul tells our husbands. It's so interesting. He doesn't tell them to rule, to boss, or even to lead us in this passage, right? He tells them three times to love and then to nourish and cherish us like Christ does, the church. So according to this text, our husband's ability to lead is directly dependent on us empowering them. This gives us tremendous influence over our husbands and our families. It leaves us in a sense still in the leadership position. Do you see what I'm saying? In the end, it's kind of all up to us whether this is going to work. Because the best leaders I know, they're great because they're constantly empowering other people. That's how they lead well. That's what it's all about. Our conduct has the potential to greatly influence our husbands and our families. And haven't you seen this to be true? I often feel, for better or for worse, I'm the most powerful influence in my home. Choosing what to say, what not to say, how to react, whether to react, taking a breath, counting to 10, thinking before I say anything. My choice to speak respectfully to my husband, even when I don't respect him, changes the way that he operates. We have this power to treat our husbands respectfully or disrespectfully, to swing between dominance or independence. And so I think we arguably have the most power of anyone in our homes. I really do. Maybe this is why Paul, part of why he calls it a mystery. He's like, I don't really get it. I mean, I don't really know how to explain this, but Women, when you're spirit-filled, you're going to submit to your husbands like you submit to Christ. You'll actually be leading your family because you'll be empowering your husband. And if he's filled with the spirit, he's actually going to be submitting to you, even though he's leading if you let him, and he's going to be meeting all your needs. It's inconceivable. <laughs> but in the end, it's to teach you about Jesus. Jesus. And it will help you understand how much he loves you and has given himself up for you. And in Ephesians 5, marriage has the potential to show that to the world too. So what does it look like when it's lived out? Well, that won't look exactly the same in every marriage. I loved when Marianne told us the goal is unity, not uniformity. I love that. There's so much freedom in Christ when it comes to exactly what your marriage is going to look like and how you and your husband will live this out. And it depends on your individual temperaments and the parents who raised you and the church you grew up in and the town you grew up in. I mean, there's so many things that create culture around us. And this is why we need wisdom and power from the Spirit because you can't just look at your friend's marriage and say, I'm going to do it that way. You can't look at this friend's marriage and say, I'm going to do it that way. Your marriage will have its own story and nuances and ways that it's going to work. And this is why we need the Spirit from the time we choose a spouse all the way through our marriage. The whole time, be filled with the Spirit. But even as it looks different, I think there's some things that will be true across the board. And here's what I think they are. Uh, Number one, don't swing between dominating and independence. Try to be spirit-filled in the middle. One flesh, the design and the dream. Pray. I used to pray all the time that Darren would start helping me around the house. He wasn't raised with that model to him. Men just didn't do that in his home. And he just never thought about it. And then one day, he started sweeping and doing dishes. And um, every Tuesday night, so I can be at the river, he goes grocery shopping and he takes the kids with him and they fill up the pantry and the fridge for me. That is the spirit in my husband's life. It's not how he was made, it's not how he was raised, but I prayed for it to happen for a long time. And I'm seeing the fruit of that now in my marriage. You can diligently pray for the Holy Spirit to change your spouse. Number three, choose to speak respectfully even when you don't feel respect for your spouse's actions. This puts you above reproach, and your children won't be taught to disrespect people with their words. Number four, don't make big decisions alone. Ask him what he thinks about significant decisions with the kids or large expenditures. Even if you think he's probably on board, it just communicates respect and that you want to make decisions together. Number five, tell your husband every little thing that you notice him doing right, no matter how small it is. Doesn't that feel good when someone pays attention to you and they tell you, I see you. I know you. Thank him when he serves you, even in the smallest way. So here's something interesting. I've seen in Ephesians 5 marriage operating in the marriage of friends who don't even identify as Christian or as spiritual. It's kind of funny. So I have this friend, and... I knew that she really wanted a piano. She'd been telling me, I just really want a piano. Well, then I have this other friend who told me, I'm trying to get rid of my piano. And so I just played matchmaker. I said, I know someone who wants a piano. So I told this friend, I found a piano for you. And she said, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to ask my husband. And then a few minutes later, she texted back, oh, my husband said, no, can't have the piano. I was like, wait a minute. Did you just submit to your husband? I mean, you're not even a Christian. Why would you do that? I didn't really say that to her, but I've been thinking about it. Been thinking about their marriage, and I realized, you know, he really loves her like Christ loves the church. He is a great husband. I think he was raised in a Christian home. He treats her like this passage describes. And you know what? It evokes that kind of respect from her where she trusts him. She runs these things by him. Hey, can I have a piano? No, it won't fit in the living room. Okay, that's a good decision, and I thought, you know, it's so interesting. They're not in relationship with Christ, but they're image bearers, right? They're made in God's image, and they're living out this design, because anything good in the world, it's just common grace God gives to everybody, and it's just confirms to me it's the way it was meant to be. It's what will just happen naturally if this is how people are treating each other. And it's beautiful. It's the best way to live. It works. Well, let's finish up what happened with Wesley and Buttercup. What did it look like in their relationship? Well, in the movie, Wesley shows up when Buttercup is set to marry Prince Humperdinck, right? Right? He can't let that happen. But he's disguised as the man in black. So she doesn't recognize him, but he knows who she is. And he's giving her a really hard time because she is about to marry someone who's not her true love. And at one point she's so annoyed, she pushes him down this really steep hill and she says, you can die for all I care. And he's tumbling down the hill and He yells out, as you wish. Oh my gosh, it's Wesley. And she throws herself down the hill and tumbles after him. She doesn't care. She just wants to be with him. Her true love. And then they have to escape Humperdinck by surviving the fire swamp, you might remember. And Wesley is like lifting her over the fire. and, And then she falls down in this sand. And he dives in after her and saves her. But then she delivers him from the R-O-U-S, the rodent of unusual size. Do you remember that? (laughs) True love is not easy. We're constantly called to give our lives for one another. Well, what is God's call on your life because of this passage today? Again, if you're single and you're looking to marry... Be filled with the Spirit. Choose a partner wisely. Someone with a temperament that works with yours. Someone who's going to love you the way that this passage says. Someone who knows the Lord so they can be Spirit-filled. That's who you should marry. If you're married, be filled with the Spirit. Pursue oneness in your marriage to the best of your ability. Realize the power that God's given you To empower your husband. Take it seriously and steward it really well. Even if you're single, this passage starts out with submit to one another. It's telling us how to live in all of our relationships, right? Laying down our lives for other people. Which is Christ's way. This is actually the essence of the Christian life, right? Dying to yourself. Now, Jesus literally died on the cross, and we probably won't have to die on a cross in our lives, but we die a thousand deaths to ourselves every day, don't we? As human beings, as parents, as spouses, as friends, we laid on our lives for people. It's a way of life for us as Christ followers, but the Spirit has made us alive with Christ, and God is calling us to be spirit-filled in our relationships right now. I'm going to end by praying this prayer that was at the beginning of our lesson on page 201. Lord, help us to be good wives. We fully realize that we don't have what it takes to be one without your help. Take our selfishness, our impatience, irritability, turn them into kindness, long-suffering, and the willingness to bear all things. Take my old emotional habits, mindsets, automatic reactions, rude assumptions, and self-protective stance. Make me patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. I am not able to rise above who I am at this moment. Only you can transform me. Amen.